Well, good morning, church. A couple of weeks ago, when we started this series in 2 Timothy, after I was done preaching, I was talking to Reagan and Jake, um, and they were sharing with me how encouraged they were by the text of Scripture that we had looked at that morning. And uh, they were saying that they looked forward to the rest of our study in the book of 2 Timothy. And I told them at that time, well, it's going to be interesting to preach the rest of the book because Paul really just repeats himself again and again, chapter after chapter throughout 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy that the gospel must be preserved, that suffering is to be expected, and that the Bible is the key to enduring faithfully. I told him we could probably just play back what we recorded from chapter 1 each week when we came in here and you get the gist of each chapter. Now, I'm not going to have you listen to a recording this morning, but nonetheless, we have here in chapter 3 the same basic points that Paul has been making throughout the letter. The main difference in this chapter is where the opposition to believing and living out the gospel comes from. But like the other chapters, there is suffering to be endured. In fact, we're told that there is a whole epic of time in which suffering should be anticipated. However, Paul tells us, he gives us instruction as to how to navigate that period of time. And, spoiler alert, it's through devotion to God's Word that we navigate that time. So, the, the whole of the chapter can be understood this way. Difficult days demand devoted disciples. Difficult days demand devoted disciples. So, let's pray again and then receive this instruction from our Lord together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And God, as we consider it this morning, we pray that you would do what you have said you sent it for. Lord, we ask that you would use it in our lives. In the ways that each of us need it individually, we ask that we would profit from it. And that, Lord, you would make us more into the image of your Son. God, please shape us, inform us by your word that we might live lives in difficult days that walk in righteousness and holiness until you take us to yourself and you make us finally and fully righteous and holy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, throughout this letter, as I was saying a moment ago, Paul has been consistently realistic. He's not shrunk back from letting Timothy know that the life of the faithful Christian is marked by suffering. And as he transitions to this portion of the letter, the truth doesn't get any easier to swallow. After he's just advocated in chapter 2 for Timothy to make disciples faithfully through the Scriptures... Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And the full weight of 
this warning can easily be missed. That term there, difficulty, in, in the English, it, it carries with it, in the original language, the idea of being perilous or grievous. The same term is actually used over in Matthew chapter 8 of the Gadarean demoniac. Only there, it's translated fierce and violent. So that the days that the apostle speaks of are certainly difficult, but it's not difficult to the normal degree of difficulty that we experience in our lives. This isn't the level of difficulty associated with getting all the household chores done, right? Or, or is this not even the level of difficulty associated with making sure all the bills get paid by the end of the month? No, these days would bring levels of anxiety and grief to a whole nother level. And it should be understood that the, the last days that Paul is referencing here is the whole of the church age. That time from the establishment of the church at Pentecost to the time of Christ's return. And we know this from the passage because in verse 5, Paul issues a command to Timothy and those with him concerning how to respond in these difficult days. So we understand that even from the first century, these last days were underway. Now with that, we can turn our attention to what it is that makes these difficult days so grievous? And in short, it's people that make these days so grievous. Sinful people. The apostle lists off, lists off for us a number of sinful acts and attitudes here. But to, to understand the message, all that, was, that would really be necessary is to read the first and the last of the list. In the first place, Paul mentions that those who make for terrible times are lovers of self. And in the last place, he said that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Everything in between, you see, is just the outworking of a heart that loves self instead of God. These people love money, we're told, even if they aren't rich, because it's in it that they think they have the security to live out their selfish desires. They exalt the self in pride and arrogance, which spills over then into abuse of others, we're told, because others are seen as less important, less than honorable or respectable. These people, we're told, are disobedient to parents, which may seem like a small thing in a list of such awful sins. But that's, that's part of the lesson, right? It's positioned here next to all of these awful sins. That, that really speaks to how important it is. In fact, if, if, if you're a young person here in this room with your parents, you just listen up for just a moment. You should pay close attention for a second. Listen, I know the world will tell you that obeying your parents is a small thing, kids. The world may say that it's, it's not cool, it's not, it's not worth it. But listen, the God of the Bible says that it is no small thing that you obey your parents. It's, it's a big deal, we're told, because in a sense that's your training ground for how it is that you are to live as a Christian 
in the world. You see, you should know on this Mother's Day that it's in learning to obey the father and mother that you can see, that you learn to obey the father in heaven that you can't see. But one committed to the love of self has a difficult time with the idea of submitting to authority. The lover of self also lacks gratitude for others and lacks the pursuit of godliness. Their their self-centeredness can even lead, as the apostle says, to being brutal, which refers to savage behavior. When the seeds of selfishness are not quickly rooted out, they foster the true belief that whatever is necessary for achieving personal desires is justified, even if it means acting brutally towards others. Yet it's not just others that the lover of self acts without regard. Self-centeredness breeds recklessness, Paul says, acting in a manner that not only disregards the good of others, but the good of yourself. Because all that matters is having their passions fulfilled, even if that's detrimental to them long term. Paul says in verse 5 of these that make for difficult times, these people, that they have the appearance of godliness which cues the reader in to exactly who the apostle is warning Timothy about here. These are those that others expect to be godly people. And in fact, they have an external disguise. They've externally disguised themselves in an appearance, or some versions read a form of godliness. These are those who profess to be Christian but are false converts. They disguise themselves in religiosity, learning the religious language, engaging in religious practices, and keeping religious company. But but inwardly, they are, to quote Paul, lovers of self, not lovers of God. You see, Paul wanted Timothy to understand that in the fight to get the gospel to the next generation, that's what he's been hammering on throughout this book of 2 Timothy, and he wanted, to understand, he wanted Timothy to understand that in the fight to get the gospel to the next generation, opposition would come not only from external sources, but internal as well. There would be opposition from within the church. And it would rightly be asked at this point, well, how do these false converts create opposition for the preservation of the gospel? I understand that Their own soul may be in peril. How does this work to oppose the true message of the gospel and then subsequently make for such difficult times for true Christians? And those are good questions. The answer to those lies in Paul's claim that these folks have an appearance of godliness. Look at the verse. They deny its power. Though they have this appearance of godliness, they deny its power. And it's pretty clear after having listed off the sins that flow out of these false converts that the power they deny is the power of God to set us free from sin, which is so key to the gospel message. In fact, 
Freedom from sin is the foundation of the gospel message. Jesus came to live a sinless life and die on the cross and rise from the grave in order that we would be freed from sin. Freed from sin and the wrath of God to come on sin. Freed from sin so that we would be able to live eternally with Him sinlessly. Freed from the dominating power of sin even in this life to walk in holiness and righteousness. Remember the way the the same apostle speaks of the power of God found in the gospel in Romans chapter 6. There we read, We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But the false convert, you see, denies the power of God to free us from sin and the ability to walk in that newness of life. So these these false converts can make the last days difficult in at least two ways. They can directly distort the gospel message by twisting the words of Scripture to suit their own personal appetites. You've heard people do this before, you know, elevating all that the Bible has to say about receiving blessings in association with the Lord and de-emphasizing the cost and the fight against sin that the Bible says real believers engage in. So they can directly distort the gospel message, but in another way, they can indirectly distort the gospel message by virtue of the inconsistent life that they live. False converts can live inconsistent lives. Professing to believe the true gospel, they they live an ungodly life. And this leads those unfamiliar with the Bible to believe that that's possible. And it results in both of these cases, either twisting the words of Scripture or simply living in a life inconsistent with the gospel, In both of these, the result is that the world, who's watching these false converts' version of Christianity, the world turns to Christians and applies pressure to compromise. To compromise either on what they say from the Scriptures or to compromise in how consistently you live that out. And in this way, these false converts create pressure and Difficult days for true Christians. So Paul gives us clear instruction as to what to do about these false converts. He says at verse 5, look at it. What are we to do? Avoid such people. Literally, what's, what's meant here in the original language is to turn your back to these people, withdrawing fellowship from them. As I was Studying this term, I was reminded of one of the first times I went to the rescue mission with Greg to preach. And he informed me beforehand that it would be a a different kind of crowd down there. And uh, maybe different than I'd preached to in the past. I thought, well, I've I've preached to some characters in some, you know, unconventional settings before. So we'll be all right. So we went. And when we went, we we came in and chatted with several guys, finishing up their dinner. 
And I was evaluating the room. And I thought, well, there's a lot of distractions in here. And some of these guys obviously aren't very happy that they have to listen to some Bible preaching in order to get their bunk for the evening. But we'll be fine. And then something unexpected happened. Just as I began to preach, a few guys in the room that we were all crowded into very pointedly and exaggeratedly stood up, turned their chairs around, and sat with their backs to me as I preached. Come to find out, these guys were a part of a cult that would have them not listen to any other teaching. But they had to stay in the room if they were going to be given their bunk for the night. So they made their rejection of the teaching known in this way. Now, I share that only to illustrate that is exactly what Paul is calling us to do with those who profess to believe the gospel, yet live and speak as though it has no power over sin. The apostle is consistent in in his message about this throughout his ministry. You'll remember what he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says there, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He goes on, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person, he says, from among you. Avoid them. Paul says. And all the more because there are some of these false converts who excel in the direct distortion of the gospel. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Any acceptance in the church of those who are clearly false converts opens the door for false teachers to gain ground among weaker Christians. And mama didn't raise no fool, so let's be clear. That is who we're talking about here. That adjective before women is important. Weaker women. Paul is not referencing here all women, but those who are weak. In fact, the point he's making, it isn't limited to women at all. It applies to all of those who are weak in the faith. Now, in the kindness of God, we are made aware here of one of the favorite schemes of the enemy. One that he has used since the first temptation in the Garden of Eden, praying there too on the woman who was weaker than she should have been. But to be clear, there are two types of people in view in verse 6. We have clearly the reference to false teachers and then genuine Christians, but those who are not as strong as they should be and thus in danger of being influenced by a distortion of the gospel. These weak Christians are those already burdened with sins, Paul says, and led astray by various passions. Though these believers may battle against sin instead of outright 
accepting its presence in their life and saying that God has no power over it. They, they do battle against sin, but nonetheless, they are unskilled in that battle against sin. And verse 7 tells us why. It says they're, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Meaning that they, they are unsettled in their understanding of exactly what the Bible teaches and how it's to be applied. There are those who say, well, I, you know, I never want to be so arrogant as to believe that I've got all this doctrine stuff figured out and nailed down. So I just don't want to commit myself to a particular perspective. And friend, if that's you, let me just say, you better get this doctrine stuff figured out and nailed down. Because the Bible is clear that while humility is a good quality, being settled in doctrine is part of what it, it's part of what makes for a godly life. It's part of what grows you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4 says that part of the reason why the church exists is for this reason. In ministering to one another and growing in Christ, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we read that we minister to one another and build one another up into Christ that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And as Paul's going to go on to make clear, the scriptures are, are perfectly fit to settle you in doctrine. But the point at this moment in the text is that false teachers among the false converts pose a real danger to weak Christians. Paul brings to mind that the presence of false teachers in the ranks of professing believers is nothing new in the history of God's people. He says in verse 8 that those who oppose the true gospel in the church age are just as Jonas and Jambres who opposed Moses. And if you're thinking, oh yeah, I, I remember uh, Jonas and Jambres from the Exodus narrative, then you'd be lying because Jonas and Jambres aren't in the Exodus narrative. In fact, they're not mentioned anywhere in the Bible except here. Paul here is writing to Timothy, knowing how familiar the young pastor is with his Jewish tradition. It's not scripture, but Jewish tradition that assigns names to these two magicians in Pharaoh's court who duplicated many of the miracles that the Lord did through Moses. Tradition holds that Janus, meaning he who seduces, and Jambres, meaning he who makes rebellion, pretended to convert to Judaism. And in the wilderness, they sought to subvert the divine assignment that the Lord had given Moses. But this is only before they were found out, at which point they were killed by the Levites, tradition says. But Paul says that like Janus and Jambres, the false teachers who arise among God's people in the church age, that they will be found out as well. Verse 9 reads, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. By their, by their conduct and their character, false teachers will be exposed for who they are to those who are mature in the faith. So, so there's no need for mature Christians 
to fret about falling prey to their deception. There's only to obey Paul's command in the passage, which is to avoid them. Avoid them as they are made known for who they are. Avoid them to protect the weaker brothers. And avoid them so that you are disassociated as much as possible with their perversion of the gospel. But still we recognize that due to their influence, the days will be difficult. They will wear on even mature believers. And if the mature believer need not worry about falling prey to the deception of false teaching, then the the most pressing question is, well, how does one maintain spiritual maturity and vitality in these difficult days that the false converts create? And and let's say you aren't spiritually mature. Let's say you're one of the, the weak ones mentioned in Verse 6, how do you go about growing in Christian maturity? Well, these questions are what Paul goes on to tell us. And the answer is actually the same for both. Paul makes a clear shift in verse 10 from describing those who make the last day so difficult to describing how Timothy is to remain a spiritually healthy person in such perilous times. To do this, Paul first reminds Timothy of what brought him to the level of spiritual strength and maturity that he currently possesses. The apostle says in verse 10, You, however, in contrast to all those previously mentioned, the the false converts, the false teachers, the weak Christians, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience. My love, my steadfastness. In summary, Timothy has has taken in the Apostle's teaching and he's taken in the Apostle's personal application of that teaching. He's watched Paul closely. But the young pastor has gone beyond just watching Paul to modeling after him. That's what the term followed really means here in the original language. It's it's a comprehensive conforming to. And Paul isn't being arrogant here in sort of setting himself up as the standard. He's simply commending Timothy for doing what Paul charged the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 11. When he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul isn't pointing to himself as the standard He's pointing beyond himself to the Lord Jesus, you see. But imitating Paul's godliness is not all that Timothy would have observed from him. Paul continues saying Timothy has followed his persecutions and sufferings that happened to him at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. He has watched the apostle suffer, and he has stood by him through his suffering. And no doubt the apostle brings this up, not just about his pursuit of godliness, but the persecution associated with it in order to remind Timothy not to be discouraged by suffering. It's as though Paul says, remember Timothy, I've 
pursued godliness, and it has not kept me from suffering, but it has kept me through the suffering. Then he just states it plainly for us in verse 12. Look at it. Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He goes on in verse 13 to say that we can expect that evil people and those imposters of the faith will simply grow in their sinfulness. And in verse 12 and 13, they're one sentence, so as to communicate that one is as natural as the other. Just as evil people will grow more evil, so those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And this morning, friends, nothing has changed. The, the, the message is the same for us as it was for Timothy. We certainly live in a, a time that applies a lot of pressure to Christians to compromise. And the, the threat of commitment to the gospel costing you something grows day by day. And the message of the apostle remains the same. It's the same message that he gave to Timothy. You can't expect your faith to keep you from the suffering but you can expect it to keep you through the suffering. So what's, what's the prescription then for, for growing in and maintaining a faith that will hold up through suffering? That will hold you up through suffering? Well, Paul tells us in verse 14. He says to Timothy, As for you, continue. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. So after all that Timothy has done in patterning after Paul, the apostle says, keep it up. Keep going, Timothy. And notice that Paul draws Timothy's attention here, particularly to the sources of what he has learned and believed. It's not just from anywhere, but from apostolic and prophetic authority that Timothy has learned these things. At the end of verse 14 and into Verse 15, we read, Knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul is obviously referencing himself in verse 14, and the Old Testament scriptures in verse 15. And he brings this up in order to give the young pastor confidence, so that if in the persecutions Timothy was ever tempted to question the validity of his beliefs and convictions, he would remember, I didn't make this up. No, what I believe is what the, what the apostles and prophets have taught. And in remembering that, Timothy then would remember that the apostles and the prophets are but God's mouthpieces. Therefore, the message that Timothy suffers for does not originate from man, but from God. That's why it's able to sustain the disciples of the Lord Jesus in difficult days. This is what the apostle goes on to say. As his point becomes all the more clear that if we would remain spiritually healthy through difficult days, those difficult days demand disciples to be devoted 
Devoted to what? The Word of God. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Meaning that while God used human authors in specific contexts to communicate to mankind, they are nonetheless His words. 2 Peter chapter 1 gives a more detailed explanation of this idea, saying, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the words must be God's if verse 15 here in our passage is true in saying that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. No, no words of man can provide the spiritual illumination necessary for conviction and trust in Christ. Yet we find here that the Scriptures are indeed good for this. And not only this, not only producing, leading to salvation through faith in Christ, they are good for leading one through life as a mature Christian. Continue reading in verse 16. Not only are the Scriptures breathed out or inspired by God, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Teaching here has to do with doctrinal instruction. This is what is so neglected by those called weak up in verse 6. While some claim to not want to be so arrogant as to think that they've got this doctrine stuff figured out. Paul says here that the Scriptures are given for precisely that reason. But not that only. Scripture is also profitable for reproof, we're told. Which is the idea of, of rebuking in order to convict of sin or false doctrine. And God, being the, the gracious God that He is... He does not only give us what's necessary for conviction of wrong, He goes on to provide instruction about how we are to correct our wrong actions and attitudes and ideas. This is what's meant by the word correction there in verse 16. It's the idea of restoring something to its original or proper condition. Lastly, we're informed that the scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Now this needs no explanation. We understand that the word of God is useful as a guidebook for growing in likeness to Christ. And it's, it's worthy of note here that we're told that the scriptures are profitable for each of these uses. That term profitable actually carries with it more than the idea of just beneficial in these ways. It is beneficial, certainly, but more than that, the concept here is the Bible is sufficient for these things. In other words, it's all that you need. What Paul's really getting at here is to say that if you, Christian, if you desire maturity, if you desire to grow in solidifying your doctrine and, and receiving healthy conviction along with proper instruction in godliness, if you desire to grow in these things, then you look to the Bible. It and it alone is enough to nourish your soul in these ways. 
There is no other source, brothers and sisters. And this is echoed in verse 17, where Paul states that the purpose of God in giving his word is so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the word is relevant to every facet of life. All things are to be done for the glory of God, right? If you're sharing your faith or sitting in the DMV, if you're fighting against sin or fixing the car, in every situation that you can conceive, the Word of God is the source for how to go about it in a way that is righteous and pleasing to the Lord. Remember what Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, saying that everything is made holy. How? By the Word of God and prayer. Friends, I don't need to tell you how difficult the days that we live in are. The pressure to compromise in our beliefs and in our behavior abounds. This shouldn't surprise us. The Bible tells us that this will be the case. We're promised that the days will indeed be difficult. Yet, the Lord has not left us without what is necessary to hold fast to the gospel and to live faithfully for Him. In these difficult days, we are equipped for devotion to the Lord by devoting ourselves to His Word. Yes, difficult days, you might say, demand disciples to be devoted to the Word. The Scriptures are the only source for what is able to guide us in righteousness. But praise God, there's no other source that's needed, friends, because they are sufficient for the difficult days that we face. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you yet again for your word. Oh God, I would ask that in considering this text, God, we, we would all be stirred up anew to commit ourselves to your word. Lord, in your elevating your word, you're only pointing us to what's good for us. So Father, I do pray that you would stir in us a desire for the good. Good for our own souls, God. Let us drink from your word and find nourishment there. Help us, Lord, to look to it and see the beauty of the Lord Jesus, the authority of the Lord Jesus, that we would lovingly, willingly submit to the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close. At the end of verse 13.